Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark. I'm Adam Cronin. And today we're discussing the future of wealth. So we'll get into how the nature of wealth creation has changed over time, the best ways to create wealth now and in the future, uh, the importance of understanding leverage, accountability, and also game theory for wealth creation. And finally, we'll talk about how to overcome the growing challenges of wealth inequality in America and around the world. Um, maybe to start, Matamore, we can talk about what wealth actually is. Yeah, I think the easiest way to get the idea of how wealth is different from money or status across is through the rich dad, poor dad examples. So mm -hmm. Robert Kiyosaki wrote this famous book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, about his own life growing up in Hawaii. And his own dad, he calls the poor dad, and his friend's dad, he calls the rich dad. And okay. the funny thing is they both started out with the same sort of amount of money. They had similar houses. They had similar income level. And, you know, the quote unquote poor dad may even have had higher status because he was a Ph.D. He had all these degrees. He worked as a professor. But mm -hmm. the reason why that dad was considered the poor dad is because he was still part of the rat race meaning he had to go every day to work for a job and he was working for money. He didn't have any mm -hmm. assets built up himself, so he essentially could never stop working. So even when his kids were older, it's not like he could just take it easy and relax and retire. He always had to get up, go to work and be a part of that rat race. Whereas the rich dad with the same amount of income, he was spending that income uh, strategically to build up his own assets. So he started, I think it was a sugar farm, and he was essentially building something that would eventually make money for him even when he was asleep. And so over time, the rich dad acquired more and more assets, and with that came more and more freedom, so that by the time they were both in their you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, the rich dad could just take it easy and his money just grew on its own. Whereas the poor dad every day was still, you know, nickel and diming and worrying what would happen if he lost his job. And that really, I think, brings home the idea that wealth is not the same as income and it's not the same as status and it's not the same as money. It really is what you would have left, how long you could survive if you stopped earning an income today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really important to consider is like what what can you acquire to earn money while you're sleeping or what can you do to eventually earn money while you're sleeping? And the interesting thing is there's a trade off, right? Like in the short term, you're not going to be making as much money necessarily in the long term, though these these compounding effects whether that's through relationships or through the uh, invested money or really anything else can compound those compounding effects lead to wealth over time and yeah. you said it you said it really well where like you, the poor dad he's just trading his hours for money he can't just sit back go you know if he's going surfing for a day or if he's doing something during the day even he has to be working, otherwise he's not making money. That's not where you want to be, especially later in life. Right. It's, there's this quote that brings that home that says, no one ever got wealthy working for a living. And that's very true. You, you want to be building something for yourself. Like uh, Sam Altman has this quote where he says that, 
I want to take on projects that, if successful, will make the rest of my career look like a footnote. So mm. <laughs> you want to swing big and swing for the fences. And it might be helpful just to say a few examples of how you could make passive income in general. Um, and mm -hmm. then we can sort of get into how the nature of wealth creation has changed over time. Mm -hmm. um, so a few examples of passive income, you know, for instance, we have this podcast and mm -hmm. while it's not like we make a lot of money on any particular episode over time, the idea is that you would grow and get a bigger and bigger audience. And eventually, you know, we would be making more than we invest into it. And eventually we'd be making way more than we invest into it. And the peak of that is, you know, Joe Rogan who makes, like 100 to 200 million dollars a year and he's not really putting in any more effort than he did in his first few episodes of the podcast where he was making zero dollars so that's one you know starting a youtube channel that gets monetized is another one you could write an ebook on amazon and whenever someone buys that book on amazon you get a little bit of money um, you know same thing if you're a musician you could get royalties that way uh, you can do it through real estate, like you could rent out your, you know, a room in your apartment or maybe start buying up a few different apartments and then renting them out on Airbnb for a profit. Mm -hmm. So there are there are a lot of ways to make money. And it's just it really comes down to recognizing the difference between assets and liabilities and putting all of your effort into growing your assets Um you know, uh, compared to your liabilities. And that includes stocks yeah. and index funds and a lot of the stuff we talked about on the future of finance. Mm. The thing I would add to that, though, is having a loan is a liability and that's also a form of leverage. So you have to figure out what sort of risk tolerance you have and what you expect the growth of your assets are because you can increase your liabilities in the short term, which will ultimately increase your assets in the long term. So there's this like weird balance that has to be played. And um, it's also worth noting that w there are different phases of life and different um, in terms of wealth creation. Mm -hmm. You and I are kind of in the early phases where we're building, right? And a lot of people listening to this are also in a building phase, which doesn't mean right now we're necessarily wealthy, right? But we're, we're, laying the groundwork and we're working towards that. And um, one of the other things that's uh, that I think is interesting is, uh, so Naval had this really long mega episode all about wealth creation. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a very insightful podcast for me. I've listened to it a couple times already, but he was, he's talked several times about how the returns that you see from any sort of wealth building activity, almost all of the wealth is generated towards the very end of right. whatever whatever it is that you're doing. So with this podcast, at any point in time, all of the returns, or at least a majority of the returns we see, will be at the very end of you know, the life cycle. Yeah, I think the um, quote was, just, most of the benefits of compounding come at the yeah. end of the compounding. Yeah. And if you look at how a compounded graph looks, it, it looks like it's growing really uh, slowly in the beginning and then it just skyrockets towards the end. But the interesting thing about that is you can zoom in at any point and depending on how you scale that graph, it always looks like that at any point in the graph, depending on what the scale is. 
and that's yeah. just the nature the the math behind how compounding works right and that that sort of um is applied with another quote from naval where he says impatience with action patience with results mm-hmm. so for us like we have impatience with action we always you know record episodes put out our research put out our social posts but we have mm-hmm. patience with results so we're not going to freak out because we're not you know immediately making our end goal of how much we would like to make and mm-hmm. you know that's the same with time value of money like if you put money into a Roth IRA you're not going to see many impressive results for years and years and years but then by the time you're in your 60s you will for sure be a millionaire if you just put in the minimum amount allowed by the government like 5000 6000 a year into your Roth IRA and so you really want to make time work for you and you want to make money work for you as well that's one of the key differences in the rich dad poor dad book that he talks about is that mm-hmm. the poor work for money they want money they see it as this like money is their master whereas the rich <laughs> yeah. they they use money for themselves they use money to attract employees they use it to mm-hmm. build assets and then they use it to grow their piles a little bit of chips at a time so mm-hmm. they eventually have a lot mm-hmm. yeah i think those are all really good points uh, maybe now we can talk a little bit about how the nature of wealth has changed over time yeah i find this really uh, fascinating so if you think about the earliest humans like the hunter gatherers there was mm-hmm. no wealth because whatever you killed you ate it right then you didn't have any surplus before the agrarian mm-hmm. age mm-hmm. So all you had at those times was status. You know, who's the chieftain of the tribe? Who gets their pick of, of uh, sexual partners? Who mm-hmm. has the most leverage when you're uh, disputing with other tribes because everyone knows you're respectable and you're strong and you'll fight to mm-hmm. the end against saber-toothed tigers? There was no wealth. But mm-hmm. then a lot of people, archaeologists and anthropologists say that wealth was really really began in the agrarian age with the surplus and some people even say mm. the surplus was the root of all evil because now you had enough mm. corn not just to eat but you could actually store your corn and then use it as leverage over time so that when people were really hungry in the winter you could command high prices for that corn and you could get you know more and more powerful and in this agrarian age it was really labor was the main form of leverage and wealth because if you had the most people working for you the most workers the most slaves the most soldiers you were typically the most powerful like think about mm-hmm. the, the the pharaoh of Egypt and all the all the people working for him to to build the pyramids and like the yeah. great armies he had uh then we it transitioned away from labor as the main form of wealth to capital with the industrial age. So mm-hmm. this is when you had, you know, JD Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, even people like Warren Buffett who basically you would invest in machines with capital so mm-hmm. that rather than hiring a bunch of weavers, you buy a bunch of looms and then you can create mm-hmm. garments rather than just focusing on labor. And this mm-hmm. is where a lot of the, the like baby boomers, a lot of their wealth was created through this this form of cap of, of wealth, which is capital. Mm-hmm. And then the new age, the internet age, which is what we're in today, I actually think is the most fascinating because this is where 
scale is the most important. So it can be scale as far as media, like how many people can you reach through your YouTube channel or your social media or, or whatever, your podcast, or mm -hmm. scale through software. Like, you know, if you've ever looked at Stripe's revenue numbers, it is absolutely astronomical because so many businesses use Stripe and mm -hmm. there's no marginal cost to put Stripe on another iPad here, another computer there, another coffee shop over there. So it's infinite yep. scale. And that's why a lot of people say, you know, software is eating the world because it's so scalable and it's also permissionless. You don't need someone to tell you, oh, yeah, it's OK for you to start a YouTube channel or, oh, yeah, it's OK for you to start this little software company like you can just mm -hmm. do it yourself and you can access at, like, you know, almost everyone in the world through the Internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really amazing because the Internet allows anybody to, you know, leverage whatever it is, whatever value that they have and put that out to the world. Right. Like back in the day, let's say in the 1700, a, a farmer that wanted to be an artist or wanted to do something crazy and had this really unique set of skills probably isn't going to be able to leverage that due to the nature of where he is and how much his, you know, his creations can reach, uh, mm -hmm. how many people his creations can reach. Whereas now, if you have any sort of creative ability, you can put it on Instagram, you can put it on YouTube, you can really scale out your own persona in the internet age. And that makes it easier for people to um, navigate and, and really um, like ascend the ladder of wealth even when they started off in poverty. Whereas back in the day, if you were, you know, if you were a poor farmer and you grew up a poor farmer, you're probably always going to be a poor farmer. Um, and there's right. always exceptions to that, but now I think it's easier more than ever to, you know, make your way in the world and create wealth, even if you don't have wealth currently. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's easier to reach the massive scale that mm -hmm. wouldn't even be possible before. It is still difficult mm -hmm. just given how competitive the attention economy is now. So yeah. Yeah. that's one thing that's really different now with wealth creation versus in the past is that now you're competing with so many apps, products, media, whatever you could possibly do uh, to get yeah. people's attention. Whereas in the past, you know, you competed with whoever had the most money when it was all about capital and the industrial age and in the agrarian mm -hmm. age, it was all about, you know, there's a scarcity of workers. So workers were exploited, but they could also rise up and demand better conditions because they mm -hmm. really, the, the people who owned the businesses really needed workers in order for mm -hmm. they themselves to be wealthy. But mm -hmm. one thing that's interesting now is that that's sort of shifting where, mm -hmm. like for instance, my, my cousin's uh, husband is a radiologist and he mm -hmm. is in some pretty sizable debt because it's expensive to go to medical school and to get all yeah. the necessary degrees to be a radiologist. So mm -hmm. he's going into life, you know, now age 30 something is a radiologist. I just saw last week that Google now has a better success rate of identifying breast cancer than real human radiologists. 
they have a better rate when it comes to false negatives Mm -hmm. and false positives. So already Google is better at his job than he is. At least at at least in at least in breast cancer, there are still other areas where he's better. But it's interesting that this has never before been the case where you have someone that's like a, a pretty high education investment career that now no longer requires labor and it no longer really even requires capital because it's just free to just have that. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Google will probably charge something for it, but they, Mm -hmm. it doesn't cost them anything to give every hospital in the world this software. Yeah. If they have it once, they have it pretty much throughout the world. If they set up their system to be able to take images and put out a prediction of whether or not this person has breast cancer, they just need to set it up once. It doesn't matter how many other hospitals are paying them for that service. And that's what you were talking about. These software and technology services are infinitely scalable. To, you know, Infinite is a stretch. Obviously, there are still resources required, but right. those are Near very infinite. minimal. Yeah, minimal expenses because it's all you know, being done on computers that are you know, in huge data centers all around the world. And the costs to get those up and running are not that high. And honestly, most of the time, computers are sit, sitting in idle. Like they're not really doing much mm-hmm. all the time. So there's there's a lot of computational power that can still be exploited without even having more data centers. And right. it's just a really a software problem to try to get that um, you know that figured out. Yeah, and and that's part of why you know the the advice that parents typically give their kids is now very outdated. So the typical Mm -hmm. advice you'll hear is that you should go to school, study hard, get a good job at a stable company, and you'll be set. And that Mm -hmm. no longer works because it's no longer the case that you just have one job at one company for 40 years, and then you have Mm -hmm. a 401k, and then you retire. That's what our parents' generation lived through. So that's Mm -hmm. what still seems to make sense when they give advice to us. But the reality is... Nowadays, most people don't have the same job for more than a few years, and they're constantly needing to change their skill stack and change their interests so that they can adapt to the, meet, the needs of the market. So being so specialized, like my, mm-hmm. my cousin's husband is, like where he just spends all of his resources to be a radiologist, that's no longer a good strategy. He'd be much mm-hmm. better off if he knew some radiology perhaps, but he also had expertise in software and maybe he can help hospitals, you know, use the new radiology software and, you know, sort of manage it that way. Or maybe he's also really good at sales. And so he can actually liaise between the radiology software companies and the hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of ways you can fit into the modern, uh, the modern economy, but it's no longer about, you know, learning to be essentially a factory worker in school where you just learn to pay attention, follow the Be rules, obedient. Yeah. yeah, draw within the lo- the lines, like th- memorize mm. facts. Like that is mm. no longer the right way to be. It's all about being a free thinker and being highly adaptable and really it's like fitting what you do and what you want to do until mm. you are the best at the world, best in the world at being you. 
Like Joe Rogan yeah. is the best in the world. Like no one's going to take Joe Rogan's job. No one's going to take like, yeah. you know, exactly. uh, Naval Ravikant's job or like these people are, they've like, they are who their brand is now. Like, even people you hate, like Donald Trump, it's like, you know, Trump has built such a tremendous name that, that, you know, his name itself on its own will make mm. people have such extreme emotions because he's really like built that sort of brand. Um, mm -hmm. And it comes with huge risks. Like I think Trump's brand is probably going in the toilet because more than half of the country is not a fan of his. <laughs> um, yeah. But it just shows the high risk reward that, that you can have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned something really important, which is a skill stack. And this is something that um, I think uh, Scott Adams talks about a lot, where basically Definitely. the amount of work it requires to be, let's say, in the top five or 10 in your field, basically the top 0.1% of your field takes a very, very, very long time and a lot of hard work and dedication. And like you said, also, it takes a lot of specialization and you don't really have a lot of um, breadth in your skill set. And what Scott Adams says is, well, maybe instead of spending all of this time to become super specialized, maybe you become in the, you're in the top 10 or 20% of three, five, maybe even 10 different fields and you're the number one in the world at that combination of things. It is much easier to be number one in the world at a combination of things that are seemingly disconnected and finding a way to connect them than it is to be that super specialized person. And then the secondary benefit of that is you're also a little, you have more breadth, you have knowledge that spans a little bit, um, you, that spans more categories and you can adapt to different scenarios and you can maybe think about things a little differently than someone who is highly specialized. And that's key. I think that's really important and something that I've sort of found myself doing. Like, I don't think that I am necessarily the best at any one thing, but I have like this really weird connection of skills, I think that and I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, best in the world necessarily at my skills yet, but I'm still in the building phase. Yeah. And and it's, you know, the learning process I think is going to last a long time, maybe even the rest of my life, ideally the rest of my life. And, you know, for anybody, it it's really a process of continual growth and always adding new things to this skill stack. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's uh there's you should always be in the mindset of learning and that's a key differentiator between getting being at your job because you want to make money versus being there to learn and to grow your skill stack so that at some point mm -hmm. you could start your own business with your own skill stack and i think you and i were talking about this the other day where it's like you could think of all skills as being either building or selling in like mm -hmm. very broad categories and yeah. like, you're a better builder than I am. Like you can write mm -hmm. code and software programs and build, mm -hmm. you know, data funnels and that sort of thing. I can build a lot through no code. Um, but if we were to mm -hmm. put our stats up, like Madden, like type of stats, you'd have higher stats <laughs> on building than me, but I would probably have higher stats on mm -hmm. selling because I'm really into exactly. persuasion and negotiation, but I'm mm -hmm. always looking to become a better builder. You're probably looking to become a better seller, mm -hmm. but more, more so than that, we're looking to build on where we already have 
uh, skills where we're already naturally drawn towards. So if we were to fast forward mm -hmm. 10 years, I'll probably be a way better seller than I am today. And you'll probably be a way better builder than you are today. And it's, it's also worth noting that there are some skills that no matter what you do in your life, they will be valuable. I don't care what your job is. If you're good at negotiating, that will help you. If you're good at public speaking, that will help you. If you're good at just simple graphic design and you can put together a nice presentation or a nice resume or a simple clean website, that's going to help regardless. Mm -hmm. Some understanding yeah, of analytics, definitely... like that is super helpful. So there, you should learn a few skills that are common to no matter you know any occupation. Yeah, there are just some foundational skills that will serve anybody well. Reading comprehension, understanding math, like there are just mm -hmm. some of these things that help you understand the way the world works truly. And also understanding finance, that's another common skill yeah. that, that's helpful, especially in the context of this episode, which is wealth creation. Um, one, one other concept uh, related to the skill stack uh, that, that we've been talking about, and I don't remember exactly where this came from, maybe you would know, but it's the idea of being T-shaped in your skills. So the, the top of the T is like this, the breadth and the, the broadness and the amount of skills that you know. So you know a little bit about a lot of things, right. but then the, the uh, vertical line on the T is going really deep into one specific thing. So for me, maybe that's going really deep into data science, data engineering, but having a broad understanding of a bunch of different things like biology, like systems, finance, and all of the yeah. selling, all of these other things. It, just having that um, sort of breadth, but not understanding it at a really deep level, but at least understanding something at a extremely deep and expert level. Um, I yeah. think Google, I think it was someone related to Google that talks about wanting to hire people that are T-shaped, but you know, don't quote me on that. Yeah. Well, I know, uh, you know, Scott Adams most recent book, loser think, mm -hmm. uh, I actually would recommend his other books more so than this one. But the interesting uh -huh. concept behind loser think is that if you have any areas where you just don't know anything, that's where you're going to get ripped off and that's where mm -hmm. you're going to have loser think. So if you don't know anything about finance and you're like, you know what, I'm a scientist, I'm a biologist, I care about truth, I mm -hmm. care about uh, you know, academic rigor, I don't care about finance or any of that sinful, you know, pagan <laughs> stuff, whatever, then when you go to your stockbroker and he gives you some horrible offer and he's going to have 10% you know, commissions and give you this raw deal on, you know, you're not going to know that he's screwing you over. And so you're going to have a loser think. Same thing if you have an accountant or if you have a, a legal counsel or mm -hmm. like there are just certain areas where it really, really helps to have a little bit of knowledge so that mm -hmm. you at least know what's fair, what's not fair and how to spot someone who can really help you and has your interests in mind rather than mm -hmm. someone who's just going to see you as an opportunity to make themselves rich off of you. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much uh, the same concept and really the, the application of the T-shaped concept. Yeah, definitely. So it might be good now to talk a little bit about the numbers behind how wealth distribution has changed. 
because okay. this will yeah. help lay the groundwork for predicting the future scenarios. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to focus mostly on the U.S. because that's where we live. That's where we have the most knowledge. And in the U.S., so after World War II, America was in a great situation. We just won a world war and the economy pretty much grew for everyone, all income levels up until the 1970s. In the 1970s, the economic growth started to slow, and that's when the income gap and the wealth gap really started to widen. Now, after the 1970s, there was the dot-com bubble that burst right around mm-hmm. you know, 1999, 2000. That created more income inequality and wealth inequality. Then there mm-hmm. was the Great Recession of 2008 with the mortgage crisis. That yeah. created even more wealth inequality and income inequality. And even today, the wealth continues to grow for the upper class at a similar pace as it did after World War II, but it's, it's slowed tremendously for the middle and lower class. And that's why you hear so many people like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren talking about how horrible the wealth gap is. And, you know, mm-hmm. part of part of the reason why it's widening so much is exactly what we've been talking about. The fact that compounding is powerful and mm-hmm. most of the benefits of compounding happen towards the end of the compounding. So you have a lot of people, especially baby boomers that set up businesses or started, you know, bought assets in the, you know, early days after world war two or in the seventies or all around then. Mm-hmm. And now those assets are really paying off. And, you know, so like I'll say a couple other numbers that are just pretty astounding. Mm -hmm. So when baby boomers were 35 years old, they owned 21% of the nation's wealth. When Gen Xers are 35 years old, they own just 9% of the nation's wealth. And millennials are almost at the age where the average millennial is 35. It's still a little younger than that. Mm-hmm. But right now, millennials own just 3% of the nation's wealth. And they wow. comprise 25% of the total U.S. population and 30% of the voting age population. Wow. Yeah, that's that's kind of staggering to think about. And that's, you know, one of the things I said early on is that today it's easy to stand out or it's easier to stand out and broadcast your voice um but maybe maybe it is harder to build wealth maybe it is more difficult these days because there it's more of a winner take all economy like we've talked about so many times on the podcast mm-hmm. and that's worrisome it's worrisome that there is there's not really much going on to you know, combat these things. Really what's going on right now and all the policies that we're seeing is there's a disconnect between, you know, wealth creation and like wealth distribution. Uh, so like everyone on the, everyone that's in the lower classes of society or has less wealth is not going to, or is going to have a harder time um, creating wealth. But at the same time, there is still the internet, right? Like you still can, there's still a way, I think, right? If you have the work ethic to get out there, but the problem is the compounding returns. It's hard to get into these really upper, this, these upper echelons of society when 
you don't have the connections, you don't have the capital, you don't necessarily have the knowledge. So people that grow up in schools where computer science isn't taught, for example, are, are at a huge disadvantage compared to those that are at a school where computer science is taught, if we're talking about different types of leverage. Right. Um, yeah, you're so right. It is pretty difficult. And it's almost like a catch-22 because you know, part of the reason why you see the wealth gap widen whenever there's a recession is because rich people love recessions because it's a massive opportunity to get cheap assets. You can, mm -hmm. like after 2008, all the wealthy, you know, multimillionaires and billionaires bought all of these foreclosed houses out of bankruptcy court for pennies on the dollar. And then mm -hmm. once the recession rebounded and the economy was good again, now they own these assets that have appreciated in value, like 2x, mm -hmm. 5x, 10x. But when there's a recession and you're someone who's middle class or lower class as far as your income, that's when you're going to penny pinch even more. And that's when you might be the type of person that actually can no longer make payments on your mortgage. And you do have to go to you know, bankruptcy court. And mm -hmm. so it's really tough on... Uh, recessions are, are really tough with, when it comes to inequality and the wealth gap. And, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's part of why having a bigger safety net, like with universal health care or with some sort of UBI, it would be really helpful in leveling the playing field where people who no longer have their normal income can still be flexible enough to adapt their offerings to the needs of the market and they don't have to freak out about, oh my God, if I lose my job for one month, mm -hmm. then I'm not gonna be able to pay the bills and it'll be this cascading effect of a downward spiral where I eventually am like bankrupt and on the streets. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, when you look at like just the other numbers around, the death tax got repealed. And so it used to be the case that when a rich person died, that would go to the government and then a lot of it would get reallocated that's mm -hmm. no longer the case. Um, the, the GOP strategically branded it the death tax rather than the estate tax. Um, and then if you look at yeah. minimum wage numbers, minimum wage has not really increased relative to the value of the dollar. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these effects are, are sort of coming all to one end outcome. And then when you consider automation and the fact that a lot of times now you just simply don't need work as many workers to do what you want to do, then mm -hmm. it is a little worrisome for the future. But like you said, there are lots of ways it could be turned around uh, with the internet and if people start aligning their offerings with what the market needs. So we'll get into mm -hmm. that more with the scenarios, but there's a lot of interesting factors at play. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything you want to cover before we get into the worst case scenario? Oh, we didn't really talk much about luck either, how luck plays into all of this, because that's a pretty... Right. Um, but go ahead. What were you... What were you yeah, I, well, I think luck and accountability, and I do want to talk a little bit about game theory as well. Okay. So maybe let's start with game theory, because I think this is a really important point to hammer home. So mm -hmm. with game theory, I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of Prisoner's Dilemma, right? Where essentially the right strategy in a Prisoner's Dilemma is to defect. Mm -hmm. um, but if you do an iterated Prisoner's Dilemma, like imagine we rob banks like once every year 
And if I know Justin screwed me over last time, there's no way in hell I'm going to cooperate with him this time. Mm -hmm. Um, But if he cooperates with me, then I'll think "Hmm, maybe I should cooperate with him the next time we rob a bank and get arrested. So when you have the iterated prisoner's dilemma, the best strategy is tit for tat. And that means Uh whatever the other person does to you, you do the same to them. So you never defect first. Like I would always cooperate until you defect. But then once you defect, I would defect as well. And then if you start cooperating again, then I'll start cooperating again. Hmm. And in business, it makes total sense when you think about it, because if you you always want to do what's right for whoever your client is, whoever your boss is, whoever you're working with. But if all of a sudden you have a client and then they stiff you, like you build a website for a client and then they don't give you any money, well, the next time that client wants to hire you, you're going to say no because you don't trust working with that person. But if Mm -hmm. then later on they then, you know, okay, yeah, we actually just sent you the check in the mail, then you might then want to cooperate. And so this is just a good way to operate, um, you know, in business and they have had competitions where they literally have an open competition. Anyone can put in any game theory strategy they want into this software simulation and it'll mm-hmm. play out and, and determine who wins the most points at the end. And the strategy that wins time and time again is tit for tat. You know, hmm. Do unto others as others you know, do unto you. Interesting. It's almost like the, so game theory is a really interesting um, field of math too so you can get as technical in game theory as you want but the really interesting thing there with what you're describing is really compounding returns on your relationships and yeah. your reputation and kind of I, I sort of mentioned this in the beginning but compounding returns are not just money returns it's how do you treat people how moral are you these things really like how much do you lie this is one thing that sam harris talks about in his book called lying if you're Mm -hmm. seen as a liar by your friends or by anyone else no one's going to trust you anymore and then you can have compounding negative returns so it's a really um, important concept to keep in mind if you start if you nurture your relationships and you are trust you are trustworthy and you get stuff done and you you know you're just a good person that will lead to good results in the long term. Yeah, you want to be playing long-term games with long-term people. And yeah. if you're known for being ethical and fair, then you will become a, a market hub where people mm-hmm. will go to you because they trust you and they know mm-hmm. you're going to give them a fair shake. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I, I couldn't emphasize more enough that, that being ethical is going to help you in the long run. I mean, Naval calls mm-hmm. it being long-term greedy. And it's like, yeah, yeah, even if your sole motivation is to make as much money as you can, it still makes strategic sense to be super ethical and transparent mm-hmm. in all of your business dealings. Yeah, because in the long term, it's going to come back to bite you if you're not. Exactly. Um, and that's, that sort of leads into luck. And Naval was talking about four different types of luck in his yeah. um, his mega episode the first kind of luck is just kind of dumb luck where you don't like it stuff just kind of happens and this is very um like you can't really control dumb luck it just happens spontaneously um but then there's a there's a next level which is 
like hustle luck where basically you just you grind away you're always in situations you're networking you're talking to people and you're doing all of these uh like different projects but that leads to you know people thinking about you a little bit more and then opportunities just kind of fall in your lap sometimes and that's good because it's a little bit more controllable like you're sort of getting to the point where you're creating your own luck and then the next couple layers of luck is you essentially create your persona around being the best at something so people like you said earlier people just come to you to be a deal maker or the the funny example uh, Naval gave was like if you're the best underwater scuba diver and you take these really um, risky missions to go get uh, treasure from ships and you you that's known to everybody that you do that and you're the best and you'll take these really risky journeys down to uh, sunken ships with treasure potentially people are just gonna come to you so then other people's luck becomes your luck because they just go to you when they run into luck and that's like the ultimate form of luck that he was talking about exactly yeah, it's, it's, uh, and even in whatever your business is, it's like you want to have some possibilities where you could make a billion dollars. Like you want to have some possibilities for the best case scenario in your own life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that could be working for a startup where you have some equity where if that startup hits it big, you hit it big. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be, you know, it could even just be you invest in penny stocks and most of them go to zero, but some stocks will go to, you know, a thousand X and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, like the movie, that's not a recommended, no, no, we're not recommending that, but it's like, <laughs> if you don't have some bets on the table that could make you a killing, then there's no chance you're going to make a killing and it doesn't have to be monetary bets. It could be bets with, like you said, like your skill stack, if you're known for a certain skill stack, and you have a good reputation within the network, then it makes it way more likely that someone is going to come to you with an amazing offering because you've created that luck for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you want to eliminate luck from the equation. And, you know, like Naval said, he likes to believe that if you dropped him on any English speaking country on the planet within five to 10 years, you know, even if he had no money starting out, he'd become wealthy again because he has the right skill set and and processes to create that wealth. Yeah, and maybe to round this out before the uh, worst case, talk about accountability, because I know that's something. Yeah, definitely. There's one example that also that Naval gives. I really recommend people should listen to that full episode as well. It's like a three and a half hour. Yeah, it's awesome. awesome. But, (laughs) But so think about, you know, for instance, the construction world. You're a construction worker on a construction site. If something goes horribly wrong on that site, you have no real accountability because you're just a lowly worker. Like if someone, you know, if, if a, a meteor comes and wipes out the entire building that you've spent, you know, millions of dollars building, it doesn't matter to you. You still collect your pay. You're still fine. But also if it goes fabulously well, uh, if this becomes like a, a very well-known historic landmark, there's no real benefit to you. You're totally replaceable. You're just a construction worker. So that's zero accountability, but you also have zero leverage. The one level up is like, imagine you're a foreman 
on a construction site. You have, you have your team of construction workers that work for you, so you have labor as leverage. And you have some risk and reward because if the job is great, then a lot of other architects are, are going to want to hire you because they know you do a great job. But it still is limited risk and reward because, you know, ultimately it's not as high accountability as the architect himself who plans it out. And you're more of just like a logistical part of the equation rather than someone who's really strategizing at the top. So one level up is imagine you're an architect and you actually, your name can become so reputable that even your name attached to a house will make the value of the house go up like a Frank Gehry house or something like that. Um, but you can go one level beyond that where imagine you're now a real estate developer and you develop whole communities where it's super high risk, high reward. Like you could lose, you know, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in investment if no one wants to move into your community. But if people do want to move into your community and you're good at selecting the right locations and making the right deals for the right amount of money, then you could make a tremendous amount. Like you could be collecting rents for the rest of your life and it would just look like an exponential bar chart. But then think even bigger. So imagine if now, not only do you want to do an investment company, but you want to scale and allow uh, a network where you connect real estate investors to property owners. Uh, like there's a one company called Fundrise that is doing this. And this has infinite scale. And that's the, the last type of leverage where you have the most risk and reward because you could literally have, you know, hundreds of millions of people on your platform, each spending like thousands of dollars. Like you could be making billions on that sort of a platform. But if the whole network gets hacked and, you know, you could be paying some incredible legal fees, um, you know, so there are a lot of ways it could go wrong as well. But the importance of showing this is that in any industry, it's not just high tech industries. This is like, you know, using real estate or construction as an example. There are different rungs along the ladder. And at each rung, you get higher accountability, meaning your ass is on the line, whether it goes well or goes horribly. But you also get higher risk and reward and higher leverage. And so that's like it's, it's important to, to not be so fearful about taking on accountability and rather make accountability your friend. Like mm -hmm. even if you're just still working at a company with a job and you don't have equity, go to your boss and say you'd like to take on a new project and you want to be the guy that's in charge of your social media account. And mm -hmm. you can show your boss that you're doing a fantastic job there. And then maybe he says, okay, you know, now you can also take on, you know, our email marketing channel or whatever. And eventually you could be the guy that pretty much is accountable for revenue. And now you're the most important guy in the business. And eventually your boss may decide, you know, this guy is sort of the de facto successor for this business mm -hmm. because he yeah. knows the most important aspects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's huge. And the accountability is scary for a lot of people. You know, when your ass is on the line, like you said, it's it's nerve wracking, right? Like, am I good enough for this? Am I actually gonna do a good job? And that's scary, but it's also good for making sure that you do a good job, right? Like if you have no accountability, but you have high leverage, like that's, that's a very weird situation where you can have a huge impact 
necessarily like you can impact the business, but you don't really have any accountability that when those are disconnected, that's probably not a good thing. Yeah. Um, I, I can't think of any examples where that's the case, but uh, right. Well, think of any billionaire. Have you ever heard a billionaire play the blame game for someone else? You never, never do. Have you ever heard Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or even Mark Zuckerberg say like, well, you know, it wasn't really my fault. It was Sheryl Sandberg. She, she made this horrible decision and like, no, you Everyone don't. Everyone except for Donald Trump. <laughs> right. But yeah, he's a, he's a special case for sure. But any successful business billionaire who we know from their tax statements and everything is in fact quite successful. <laughs> And created most of their wealth on their own. Yeah, start they with, take like, extreme million. accountability yeah. or extreme yeah. ownership, as Jocko mm -hmm. uh, calls it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's it's important. It's scary, but for anyone that really cares about this and really wants to build their wealth going forward to maximize their freedom, then accountability is key. You have to really put yourself on the line so you have leverage. Yeah, let's talk about the worst case. Worst case scenario. So, Matamor, what do you think for the worst case of the future of wealth? I have a worst case that's truly terrifying, and then I have one that's not as terrifying, but still pretty awful. So let's okay. start with the truly terrifying. So the truly terrifying is a situation in which most people are not just unemployed, they're unemployable. And we've mm. talked about this in the future of jobs and automation and on a few episodes. But the notion here is that for many methods of wealth creation, you no longer need any human input. For most mm. investing, you don't need any human input. You have zero dollar commission on most stock trades. For a lot of businesses, if there's software businesses, you you know you want a few key, really skilled engineers who can sort of oversee the system, but oftentimes you don't need many other skilled employees. Like you can have a team of like ten or fifteen people and really have mm -hmm. all you need. Or for instance, like think of Lyft or Uber. They have like a small corporate team of highly paid individuals, highly skilled individuals, and then they have mm. this army of people that are barely making anything when you consider mm. the cost of their gas and their, you know, maintaining mm. their car. I could see that trend continuing to a point where it gets pretty dire. And I think what would res what would lead up to that is if there was a recession, you know, like we talked about how every recession has has resulted in a widening wealth gap. If there was another recession, it could provide an excuse for a lot of companies to lay off employees and instead replace them with uh, either contractors or with straight up robots and software applications. And mm -hmm. there could be a situation where a large portion of society is at the mercy of the welfare state and the benevolence of the government. So that's my worst, worst case scenario, which unfortunately is not that unlikely. It's not like that likely, but it's, it's not as crazy as some of our other worst case scenarios. Mm -hmm. So my less bad but still bad scenario is that 
the government takes some steps to make sure that people still have jobs. And you could sort of see in politics how a lot of the conversation is really still sort of antiquated where it's about jobs and we need to protect people's jobs and everyone's value mm-hmm. comes from their job. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's like we're not talking about the reality, which is wealth and freedom for what you want to do with your life. It's, we're still talking about like the need to work and, and uh, yeah. so if that men- mentality prevails, it seems like bullshit jobs will continue to flourish and there will be a lot of people that are sitting in front of their computer, essentially wasting time all day just so they can collect their paycheck and they're afraid to quit because they don't know what else they would do, but they're essentially not really contributing much of value to society and they're mm-hmm. sacrificing the best years of their life because they're afraid of, of uh, you know, taking the leap to either try to work for another company or try to build something for themselves. And if there's no UBI or no universal health care, then it becomes that much scarier to make that leap. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of my worst case. And then one final thing I'll say is that in my worst case, everyone is playing the blame game. Like right now, you see all these people on Twitter ripping on billionaires and saying like, hashtag eat the wealthy and, uh, you know, all these journalists who are making out Facebook to be evil um, because it's eating away a lot of the revenue that journalist companies traditionally had gotten for themselves. And Mm -hmm. it's this whole status game of everyone's, oh, it's your fault, it's your fault, rather than trying to actually fix the situation for themselves and for future generations. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, part of this is it's learned behavior I think education has a lot to do with why people are, they still just feel like they're entitled to a job that will pay them a certain amount rather than being innovative and thinking about, well, what are some interesting you know, businesses I could come up with for myself? Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, those in collection are sort of how I'm thinking about the worst case. Yeah, I agree. Uh, my worst case is very similar to the first one you mentioned. Um, but one thing that I will also say is my worst case and my best case aren't too far apart. So like just a, a couple of minor changes would turn the best case into the worst case and vice versa. Um, but anyways, in terms of the worst case, I'm really focused on income inequality. And I think if we think about the types of leverage that are go- that we're going to see in the future, it's almost unfathomable compared to what we think of as leverage today. Even software today, we're like, wow, this is the greatest form of leverage. No, this is not the end result of leverage. Leverage will continue to become more and more seemingly infinite. Let's think about what happens if there's a even a very good artificial um, not even general intelligence, just a good narrow AI yeah. that can help manage people or either help um, write software or so it's like it's leverage for software. Like it's a thing that can automate software development. It's like a, a compounding yeah. of software development. The no code leverage. movement. Yeah, but you don't even have to think about it. It's just this thing that's doing it for you. 
or an AI that is very good at making money in the stock market. There, mm -hmm. So there's the there are these few things that could lead to ridiculous forms of wealth. And then let's think about the wealth that can be generated when we're a single planetary species right now. It's a lot. It's a lot of wealth. But what happens when we become multi-planetary? What happens when there's a a civilization on Mars, a civilization on the moon, maybe there's some on Europa or a space faring species that doesn't live on a planet, it just lives on spaceships that's, that are traveling the cosmos and are mining asteroids and there's resource, like abundance that we can't conceive of. That's not going to necessarily be distributed evenly among all of humanity or former humanity because we might even speciate like we talked about in the future of Mars. Mm -hmm. um, we might be talking about not even not just trillionaires, but quadrillionaires, quintillionaires, <laughs> like the, the amount of money that that's so unfathomable that makes uh, altered carbon look like uh, you know these people that are flying around in their their skyscrapers or hanging out in their skyscrapers seem poor compared right. to what and you know I'm talking you know, thousands of years out potentially, but it is, it's still something that could happen. And if we have the lowest of the low and they don't have any sort of safety net, we're going to see maybe a few people literally run our solar system, run our, run the earth. There might just be hegemons that is, it's not necessarily a democratic hegemon. It's a hegemon that just made a bunch of money. It's and they're running Right, Everything. like an oligarchy dynasty. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah, like similar to similar to how Russia functions, but on a galactic scale or on a you know on a solar system scale, that yeah. would be terrifying to me, and that that would mean just the the whims of these very few rich people run everything, and that's not too different from what's happening right now, but it's just a much worse version of that. Yeah, I really like mm -hmm. that, and one example that Naval brought up that's kind of similar is you know machine learning right now is hot stuff like if you're an expert in machine learning you mm -hmm. are super desirable for a lot of jobs but yeah. 10 years from now machine learning might be this obvious function that anyone mm -hmm. can just pull up from this open source software and apply mm -hmm. machine learning to their business so it wouldn't make sense to be a machine learning specialist you know, even 10 years from now. And when you fast forward to just think what a world would be like where there is super effective machine learning and that you could basically build anything you want with no code except for maybe like the most advanced cutting edge like AGI that's being worked on. It's mm -hmm. pretty remarkable to consider what one person could do. And yeah. But if you are in this sort of mindset of not creating something for yourself, but more so just relying on whoever's going to pay you, then that would lead to a similar sort of worst case scenario that you're talking about where it's like, okay, yeah, there'll be a small number of like spacefaring oligarchs who live for hundreds of years and have trillions uh -huh. of dollars in wealth. And then there's going to be a whole lot of people that are basically like groveling, like on Elysium for scraps mm. and doing whatever mundane like little tasks are are, mm. are just like needed to keep everything moving. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's that's a 
that's a pretty scary scenario, but it also seems sort of like the trajectory we're on unless so, some things change. Right. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about that though. Let's say yeah. things do change. What's your best case? Best case scenario. My best case scenario is also very optimistic and I think realistic as well. Um, one thing I'll start with is that wealth creation is a positive sum game. It's not a zero sum game. Everyone can be wealthier tomorrow than we are today. And you can see this just by seeing that everyone in 2020 in a first world country is wealthier than people were 200 years ago, even in the wealthiest societies. Like I would rather be a poor person today than a rich person in the middle ages where doctors didn't even know they were supposed to wash their hands and they would like bleed <laughs> you if you were sick because they wanted to get rid of the, the, the bad blood cells and like I would still yeah. way rather live today as a poor person living on welfare. So if you fast forward that concept into the future, everyone can be much wealthier. And if we have a good, uh, a good system in place for distribution and a social safety net, then if we do start mining asteroids, then everyone can get a piece of that and everyone can be better off. However, mm -hmm. that still is sort of a uh, external locus of control mentality where you're hoping that you'll get handouts someday. What's mm -hmm. more actionable is if you are willing to create opportunity for yourself. So what that means is a perfect alignment between what people are passionate about, what they're good at, and what society needs. And I think a lot of the younger generation, you know, younger millennials, Gen Z, more and more they're realizing if they want to work and if they're going to work hard every day, they're going to work for themselves. So I mm -hmm. could see that trend continuing, especially given that a lot of these younger generations are super internet savvy. They're digital natives. They're very connected to one another. And that is powerful. And if we're all sort of working for how we feel we could best contribute to society, then that's going to have way more positive ripple effects than if everyone sort of hates their job and just, you know, wears like a collar around their neck and basically just like clicks around on BuzzFeed all day rather mm -hmm. than actually contributing meaningfully to society. Mm -hmm. But it's going to take some steps to get there. I think the main steps are, well, first I'll just start with the statistics. The single biggest predictors of wealth are occupation, number one, education, number two, and location by zip code. Um, gender is the next one down, which is not so great that, that gender is still a determining factor of wealth. You know, men still mm -hmm. earn a lot more than women. Um, and there are, are nuances to that. Also, women tend to uh, you know, yeah. go more towards child-rearing roles and that sort of thing. But it's promising that the first three are situations that we can really change. So for occupation, a lot of that's about people actually doing what they're passionate about. Like you may mm -hmm. not be motivated to get up every day and go to an office and work for five hours in front of a computer, but you might love to paint. And in that case, you should be a painter and that can create great values for society and you will work really hard at it. And you might not mm -hmm. make a lot early on, but 
the compounding will have effects, especially down the line, where you could then be very successful and get royalties for your paintings and, mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing, or for your artwork. You know, the other one is education, which is probably, in my mind, the biggest blunder for society right now, where we still have this education system that's basically training people to be factory workers instead of being free thinkers. And we're still Mm -hmm. doing rote memorization rather than really understanding first principles of science, math, writing, Mm -hmm. physics, persuasion, and then just allowing people to sort of take it wherever their curiosity leads them. So that's big. And then as far as location, you know, that's sort of a proxy for generational wealth, right? If you grew up in a wealthy neighborhood, but we can get past that through remote working and distributed teams. And now, even if you're living in Compton, you know, you can be on a remote team with, you know, a team in San Francisco, if you're a damn good coder, or if you're a really talented uh, designer. So I think all of those are factors that we can change. And it's, it's promising also that the gap, the racial wealth gap has shrunken by about half in the last like 10 or 15 years. So it's less of an issue now what race you are, which is good. The gender gap is also shrinking. So a lot of what used to be the main issues in like the 60s and 70s civil rights movements, we are solving those issues. The issues we need to solve now are more the mindset of what a modern worker is, uh, you know, rather than what it used to be, which was more of like a factory worker mindset. Um, And then I guess that just the final thing I'll say is that I'm a big proponent of universal health care and UBI. And if those are passed, like if universal health care gets passed in the next election and then maybe, you know, Andrew Yang gets elected in 2024 or 2028 and then UBI Mm -hmm. becomes implemented, I think that's going to do wonders for just people's ability to dynamically serve up to society what society needs and what they're good at and really just aligning their passions with what is needed yeah yeah i think those are all really good points and for my best case it's also about the system about altering the system to make sure that all of these wealth creation engines work for us and also all the species on the planet right because it there's so capitalism is the best system we have but it's also failed in a lot of ways it's failed to price externalities like the environment, like the environmental effects of pollution. And we just, we need to get around that. We need to figure out how to price environmental factors and the true damage and externalities um, that come from regular business practices. And that's step one is properly pricing things. And Step two is really figuring out the education system, the places people come from, because it's as good as things are and as as nice as it is that race, that racial gaps are decreasing, that gender gaps are decreasing, they still exist. So there is still work that needs to be done. We still need to make sure that a kid that grows up in Compton has the same opportunity as a kid who grows up in, you know, 
Soho or, you know, somewhere in New York City or mm -hmm. San Francisco or Malibu, like some of these other places that um, tend to have more opportunity. And yeah. so there's there's a lot of that. And also with, you know, UBI and all of these other basic needs, and if these basic needs are met, then the bot as low as you can go is capped. So there is a floor. And I think in the best case, there is a pretty high floor mm -hmm. for the way that a person can live because there's no reason to think that everyone can't live the same way that a billionaire lives or okay, maybe not a billionaire, but there's no reason to think that someone on the lowest rungs of society can't live an awesome life that is free of stress if they want it to be. Right. Um, so that's that's step number one is making sure that there's a pretty high floor and this this will come with a lot of changes but i also think that it's ridiculous to think that we need a ceiling to anybody mm -hmm. we just need to make sure the system and the incentives are in place to where the people that are getting rich are also good people and are doing good things like that's number one if people are getting rich by being sleazy by stealing by like basically being parasites on society, that's not good. And those exist today. But anyways, in the best case, the whole system is fixed, which is mm -hmm. a very difficult problem to solve. Well, but yeah. it, this is the best case. Right. And I think that when we have this system that's fixed and people are working on problems that they want to work on and they're good problems to solve and all these other things, then we do have trillionaires, quadrillion, you know, like far future. We have ridiculous amounts of wealth but we also have people that are you know that just don't really feel like doing it but they want to live a good life so they you know they're free they can do whatever they want they can walk around in the woods they can have big families like they can do whatever they want and it's yeah. really about freedom like wealth is all about freedom so right. people have the flexibility to do whatever it is they want no matter where they were born in the world no matter who they are and so on. Yeah, and it's not easy, but there are some easy things we can do right out of the gates to help mm -hmm. that. Like Andrew yep. Yang has proposed a value-added tax rather yep. than a wealth tax. So a value-added tax would be every single Amazon transaction gets taxed just a little bit, just like a few pennies here and there. And that mm -hmm. allows everyone to get some of the money that is created from these massive tech companies that just, you know, go up to, uh, you know, incredible scale. Mm -hmm. So think about that strategy as opposed to what Elizabeth Warren proposed, which is the wealth tax, which is all sort of about punishing people with money and yeah. like taking 2% of their wealth. And then it's super uh, bureaucratic intensive because you need all this army of accountants to basically decide what's the value of every single thing you own, like every painting, every suit, every property, like you have to yeah. evaluate every single thing. And then you're also fighting against the army of lawyers of every billionaire who can, you know, use charities and tax loopholes and offshore funds and all mm -hmm. of these ways to get around their wealth calculation. It, and it's they've tried it in other countries. It doesn't work. So having a simple solution that doesn't require any bureaucrats or politicians to get involved once it's mm. passed, like just taking a little percent of every Internet transaction will do wonders for 
like you said, creating a floor for society that is a respectable floor. It's not mm-hmm. people groveling every month to continue to get their welfare. It's some mm-hmm. level of basic needs that are given to everyone so that people can be more dynamic in contributing to the economy and doing what's not only right for the economy, but what they actually want to be doing in life um, mm-hmm. while also living a good life that's, that's fulfilling. Yeah, totally agree. So maybe to round it out, what do you think about the most likely? Most likely scenario. Like many of our most likely scenarios, I believe some people will benefit, some will not. Some people will embrace change and see the opportunities in a changing world. Hopefully a lot yep. of the people on the podcast are in that who listening to this are in that category but Mm. a lot of people will not a lot of people will be governed by their own fear of losing whatever their current income uh, source is and they won't take the steps to build out assets or create things for themselves Mm -hmm. and sadly i if i had to predict what would be the most likely scenario, it does seem likely that the income gap and the wealth gap will continue to widen in the future Mm -hmm. until there is some big change. Like if we start properly pricing externalities, like we have a serious carbon tax, that would help. If we had the value added tax, that would help. If we did UBI, that would help. If we had universal health care, that would help. Um, It's also, you know, they're calling that they're calling when baby boomers die and give money to their kids. They're referring to that. Economists refer to that as the great wealth transfer because there's Hmm. so much wealth that's held by baby boomers. And and part of it's that they're living a lot longer than previous generations have lived. And we talked about that on the future of of uh, longevity with with uh, David Sinclair. Mm hmm. So it's also part of what I'm wondering about is what is the world going to look like after the great wealth transfer? How are Gen Z kids going to operate in the workforce? Are they going to operate in a different way where we're going to see a lot more innovation and a lot more, you know, awesome media channels and and tech companies? Or are they going to try to do more of a traditional you know, try to get jobs and have the same sort of challenges that millennials have had where, you know, we're 25% of the population, but we only have 3% of the wealth. So there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. Mm -hmm. But I feel optimistic that once we get over a very difficult period of coming to terms with the fact that a lot of people can't contribute in a meaningful way, and we get over the difficulties of changing our education system and changing the tax system, I do feel like we now, perhaps for the first time in human history, have the potential to create a real utopia that works Mm -hmm. for everybody, that allows people to be fulfilled in their lives while also contributing to the economy and without hurting the environment and just bulldozing our way to profitability. Mm-hmm. So I feel very optimistic in the long term, but it looks like it's going to be painful in the short and even medium term, but not for everyone. That's just on average. People listening to this mm-hmm. podcast 
can take the lessons and they can create wealth and assets for themselves. And the sooner you start, the more that compounding effect is going to take hold. And, and uh, you know, we can have some pretty fabulous outcomes for individuals listening to this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that in the likely case, it will, it'll be painful for a big chunk of society. And I think society as a whole will go through some growing pains. One thing that I think that is maybe, um, you know, I could change my mind about this. I'm not too solidified in my thinking, but I think that it's possible that people become so wealthy. Some select few people become so wealthy because the leverage is so great at some point in the medium to long term that individuals and their empires will be more powerful than what we think of as countries today. Yeah. And it, it will change the entire landscape of policy and governance. And that's something that's pretty much directly correlated to the amount of wealth you have. The higher wealth you have, the greater empire you can create. And this it's almost like we're reverting back to like the very early days where the wealth and the empires that individuals had turned into nations essentially. Like it's, I think it's going to be some huge restructuring of society. I don't think this is a short term thing, but I think it's more of a long term thing that everything will just shift to Mm -hmm. individuals, their companies, which will then transform themselves into their own empires and sort of having the same governing structure as countries or states do today, which would be very interesting to see. So in the likely case, income inequality, I think, will always increase. I don't think there's going to be a time where income inequality decreases. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're thinking about the ratio of the highest earners to the lowest earners. Mm-hmm. However, I do think that the um, the floor could continue to rise. The floor will continue to, it'll rise faster in some countries. I think the US is probably the slowest um, developed country um, in terms of the rising floor. Um, but eventually the US will come around and the rest of the world will come around. But I really don't think in the future of wealth that people will continue to get like the people at the top will lose all of their money and that people won't be able to make it to the top. Right. And, Cause you can't and get it, any worse than bankrupt, but there's no cap of how much yeah. you could potentially yeah. earn or aggregate through wealth. We're pretty much capped by the amount of resources as a human race that we have access to. And we will right. continue and continue to get more resources. The, through like through the extinction of the human race, like the thing that will drive the extinction of the human race, barring some asteroid impact, is running out of resources because we've extracted all of the resources. So by default, by our very nature, we will continue to have the most amount of resources and grow our own resources. Yeah, and perhaps one final thought to leave listeners with is that we are descended from pessimists, like the humans that survived were the ones that ran away from tigers and 
didn't cross the river to see what was on the other side, which may be like a warring tribe or just people that basically played it safe. So a lot of people still have that safety risk aversion mentality where, oh, I just want to, whatever I want to, whatever I do, I've got to make sure I don't lose what I've gathered thus far, rather than thinking about what they could potentially gather from going on the other side of the metaphorical river. So nowadays in society, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is you go bankrupt. And if you're still young, you can still rebound from bankruptcy. Like if it's, you know, by age 30 or something, you can still rebound and become very wealthy. And but, you know, what we've been talking about with wealth is that there is uncapped potential for how much wealth you can make if you're willing to make big bets and if you're willing to gain your your talent stack so that you can really try to build something for yourself. And so even though it may have made sense to be pessimistic in the past, nowadays, Mm -hmm. all of the treasure goes to the risk takers. Mm -hmm. All the winnings go to people that are, you know, willing to try something big and think big and, you know, really try to make a dent in the universe. Yeah, and that's not going to happen if you're a pessimist. You, by yeah. the very nature of it's taking a self-fulfilling risks, prophecy. Yeah, yeah, you have to be at least somewhat optimistic. You don't have to be like irrationally optimistic. You have you can be cautiously optimistic, but you have to be optimistic to some extent. Otherwise, you're not going to take the risk in the first place. You have to be optimistic if you want to be wealthy. You can be a poor pessimist well, all that's your true. life. That's okay, fine. you're right. <laughs> you're allowed to be, yes. I'm yeah. not saying you can't be. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been what The Future has of Wealth. What is currently happening. And we'll see you next time. what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future.